and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Joining us today in the Curiosity Recording Room is Dr. Phoebe Norville, a general practitioner who specialises in women's health and in mental health. Now, Dr. Phoebe has some pretty unique experience in dealing with mental health issues amongst legal professionals. Her practice is very close to the Downing Centre Court Complex here in the Sydney CBD, and she brings a comprehensive perspective to the critical intersection of mental and physical well-being in the legal profession. Phoebe, thank you so much for joining me today on Hearsay. Thanks for having me, David. Now, before we get into our topic today, let's talk a bit about your background. You're a GP. Yes, so I'm a GP. I've been working at the same clinic in the CBD for the last eight years. I've also worked on and off at another clinic in the western suburbs of Sydney. At my office in the city, we're very nearby to the Downing Centre, but there's also a lot of other law firms around the area as well. So we get a lot of criminal lawyers in our practice, barristers, judges, and then also some of the government lawyers. There's a few personal injury firms nearby as well. So we see a lot of lawyers in our practice. Yeah, yeah, that sort of Liverpool Street, Hyde Park area, a lot of law firms, public, private, and of course, the court complex. Now, give us a bit of an impression of a day or a week in your practice patients coming to you, how many of those patients are presenting to you with a mental health condition or a concern about their mental health? So in any given day, mental health presentations will be the majority of the presentations that we see. That's true for actually most GPs in Australia these days. So some of the statistics that the RACGP have accumulated over the last few years is that mental health has now overtaken things like colds and flus as being the most common reason why people will present to general practice. Wow. And of those patients who are coming to you with those mental health conditions, how many are lawyers? How many are in this profession that we've just said have pretty terrible rates of depression, anxiety, stress? Yeah, it's pretty significant. So... On any given day, I'd probably see at least two or three lawyers a day with a mental health concern. Yeah, wow. And are they coming to you because they've had a kind of urgent need to speak to someone or because they have a regular relationship with you or with the practice and they're sort of coming in to check in? Most of them will have a regular relationship with me, which is great, and will be dealing with various physical and mental health concerns at any given time. And the physical and mental health concerns that they present with, they're often very interrelated and I think often a pretty direct or indirect consequence of their work. Yeah, I bet. And we're going to talk about that relationship between physical health and mental health a bit later because I think it's something that a lot of us understand in the abstract in a kind of fuzzy, I know I should be doing better to look after my physical health sort of way, but we don't really talk about the specifics. Let's go back to what's bringing your lawyer patients to you, though, because I think you've got a really interesting perspective on this. A lot of our listeners, they're lawyers or law students, and again, they kind of understand academically some of the things that might be affecting their mental health. We know a lot about vicarious trauma in practice areas like crime and family law, but I don't think we do a very good job of recognising it in ourselves or recognising it in a situation really specifically. We understand that it happens, but that it happens to other hypothetical people rather than ourselves or our colleagues. So what are some of the things that are bringing patients to you? So definitely vicarious trauma is one of the issues that we see. So 
I tend to find it is most common in often the criminal lawyers, but all lawyers will come across distressing material at some point in their career. And particularly if there's been a little bit of an accumulation of a lot of exposure to some pretty heavy stuff over a period of time, the lawyers that I see will tend to come in with sometimes some symptoms of burnout. So they'll be feeling really flat, really fatigued. They'll have poor motivation. They'll be dreading going to work. And also from that trauma point of view, I tend to find that sleep is often one of the first things that gets affected as well with people experiencing like nightmares, ruminations about the content of their work, Mm. difficulties getting to sleep, staying asleep, things like that. You know, when I used to practice as a barrister, one thing that I always found stressful and I feel like I managed that stress reasonably well, but there were times when maybe I could have managed it better, was the adversarial nature of the work. It was really hard to have a good relationship with your own performance when the whole conceit of what you were doing was that someone won and someone lost and on a long run you were lucky to be winning more often than not. So there were lots of moments to say to yourself, oh, I feel like a fraud. I feel like I'm doing a bad job. I've done a bad job by the person I'm representing. I'm intrinsically not very good at what I do if I've been unsuccessful or if I've read something wrong. But that's happening in any litigated matter to one half of the people there like every day. So do you see that relationship with the adversarial process, with litigation, with just the kind of cut and thrust of a very conflict-oriented profession affecting mental health? I do. And I think that often presents in people with a really heightened sense of anxiety and a lot of self-esteem issues, that kind of imposter syndrome that I see amongst a lot of lawyers, actually, which I think is exactly because of what you just said. It's that the conflict, the adversarial, and just by the nature of it, someone's winning and someone's losing all the time. And if you're the person that's losing, and if you're losing more than 50% of the time, then that starts to really have an impact in Mm. terms of your performance, your self-esteem, the way that your bosses speak to you as well, which for younger lawyers can often be really problematic. Is that a trend that you see amongst the patients you see that they tend to be younger, newer in the profession, or is it all the way through the profession, even to more experienced members? We have a real mixture. So I do see patients that are also towards the end of their careers as well. What I would say is that definitely the mental health concerns are a lot more prevalent in younger lawyers, particularly in terms of symptoms of anxiety. In older lawyers, they do seem to have mellowed out, found their kind of niche area, often developed a lot more confidence. So they do tend to have a little bit less anxiety. But I still find that some of the other particular issues that I see in lawyers with Substance issues, particularly around heavy drinking, physical health problems, are prevalent throughout and sometimes even increase in the older lawyers as well. Yeah, I remember I read a biography of John Hughes QC. He used to be the Attorney General. He's an extremely accomplished lawyer and he returned to practice as a silk after being the Attorney General. And he still often confided in his colleagues that he was afraid he'd never get any work again, that one day people would just stop briefing him, they'd just decide he wasn't good enough. And he had this anxiety despite having literally achieved the highest office he could in his profession in several different ways. He'd 
become senior counsel, he'd held high office in government, he still had that anxiety that he wasn't good enough. And that's towards the end of his career. I feel like that sort of never goes away. Yeah, I think for some people it doesn't. Do you think there's a bit of a silver lining to the presentation of more younger lawyers in that there might be a greater acceptance of the need to go and seek help? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot less stigma around mental health these days, I think, and a lot of younger lawyers are more aware of treatment options, services available to them, and so they're more likely to come in and actually talk about it with me and be a little bit more open. It sounds like if we were to put the myriad experiences of all of the different people in our profession and that you treat every day into like three extremely generalised buckets. It sounds like we have challenges coming from a stressful, tense, maybe even toxic work environment where people aren't showing one another respect or kindness or empathy, maybe because they're experiencing stress of their own. We've got the adversarial nature of the work. And I think I was talking before about the adversarial nature of litigation, but transactional work can be very adversarial as well. I've certainly seen that working on both sides. Transactional lawyers can be just as combative and adversarial as litigators, maybe sometimes more so. And we've also got that vicarious trauma. Yeah. I think related to that, one of the other aspects of that potentially toxic culture that certainly needs a mention is drinking culture in lawyers, Mm. long lunches that sometimes never actually end and involve huge amounts of alcohol are often the norm. My observation is that there is a culture of excessive drinking in the law. I don't think that will surprise anyone listening. But I think the circumstances in which that arises come from kind of two sources. And sometimes it's the cause of the health issue and sometimes it's the consequence of the health issue in that there's a lot of weight or importance placed on relationship marketing in corporate law that the way to win work, the way to build a practice is to take people out for long lunches and to go drinking and there's typically a culture of entertaining through alcohol consumption and I think that can be done to excess and that has negative health impacts. But then on the other hand, I think people drink to manage the other issues that we were just describing. So it can be both the cause and the effect. Yeah, there's a couple of studies that estimate that problem drinking or substance abuse is about two to three times the general population level in lawyers. And I agree with you that I think it's partly drinking to cope with, again, like we talked about, some of the stress of just high power environments and then some of the traumatic issues associated with the law, but then also that relationship drinking culture and relationship building and that kind of thing. I want to ask you about some of the strategies we can use to manage these four themes, I guess, of mental health challenges that we notice in our profession. But before I do that, let's talk specifically about alcohol consumption, because I think it's a difficult thing to Mm self-diagnose. A lot of people like to have a drink. There's nothing wrong with drinking in moderation, but people have a hard time identifying in themselves whether their alcohol consumption is healthy or unhealthy. I don't mind having a drink during the week, you know, after work. Is that healthy or not? What are the yardsticks we should be using to measure our own drinking and decide whether it's safe? So there's actually a great little questionnaire that you can do for free online that helps you answer this question for yourself. And it's called the audit or there's the audit C, which is a much shorter version of this questionnaire, which just has three questions about quantity. But the audit, if you literally Google audit alcohol, the first website that comes up is this questionnaire that's designed to assess your level of risk around drinking. And it 
partly asked you about things like your quantity that you're consuming in terms of how many days a week, how many drinks, which on average, anything that's less than about 10 standard drinks a week, probably not significantly harmful. Anything that's more than that sort of 10 to 14 is probably getting a little bit much. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. The- <laughs> you're good. You're good, hey? <laughs> We're doing okay here. But it also has some other questions around your alcohol use, which can be quite interesting ones, which are things relating to how you feel about your use or how the other people in your life feel about it. So whether anyone's ever commented negatively on your drinking or suggested that you cut down, that's usually a pretty good sign that Mm. something's going on. Whether you've ever regretted anything that you've done in the context of drinking, whether it's affecting you interpersonal relationships, those kind of things. So there's some kind of more insightful questions in that audit that can help to really analyze your relationship with alcohol in a little bit more depth to figure out whether you are drinking in like safe, healthy levels or whether you do need to look into it a little bit further. Yeah, it's not just about quantity, is it? Because I suppose some of those other factors around behavior or the way you or the people in your life feel about your drinking could highlight a risk that quantity of consumption might really increase in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And whether you're on track to being on maybe a little bit of a slippery slope with using alcohol as a coping strategy in an unhelpful way is useful to find out about. Okay, let's talk about those other three themes. And let's start with the one that I think is universal. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that almost everyone listening has probably experienced some flavour of this, whether high in intensity or very mild at some point in their professional career, which is that kind of difficult workplace environment, difficult conversations with colleagues, with superiors. Of course, we need to try and have better relationships with our colleagues and our superiors and the people that report to us. We need to try and work with one another with empathy and respect and all of those great things. But I think also we're going to have these experiences of difficult, stressful, uncomfortable conversations with our colleagues. And sometimes we aren't in a position to influence that a great deal. And we're not in a position to just walk away. So how do you recommend we manage that environment when you have a young lawyer who comes to you and says, I love my job, I love the work that I'm doing, but I work for a tyrant, none of the people around me are very supportive, and I can't just leave. Yeah, this is a conversation I've had many times. I had one patient in particular who was a lovely lady that was in a really toxic firm being directly bullied by the partner in her firm in quite an intense, quite a harmful way. And she came to me and she had a little bit of time off work. She did end up seeing a psychologist. She saw me frequently for a lot of really what I'd call just informal counselling as well. And we really went backwards and forwards about whether she should be leaving the job or not, like how she should be approaching the situation. Does she try and stick it out or not? Is it going to get better? And interestingly, she did work quite hard at the psychology, but she also is someone who is a regular meditator. So she was really good at meditation and started trying to rely on that quite frequently, was getting really good at using that and a little bit of yoga to try and manage some of her symptoms. And she actually got to the point where she would also call it a little bit luck because she basically got given a case that 
ended up being very successful for her and it did take a lot of the strain off the relationship with her boss. But I don't think it was just that, yeah. right? I'm sure it was also the things that she was doing in the background to try and really like help emotionally regulate, to help to just cope with the kind of difficult environment with that really difficult relationship that was really quite harmful for a long time. Like I'm talking a couple of years actually. And she got through it and the relationship actually completely changed in the end. And now she's still in the same firm. This is probably where four or five years on and has an acceptable, fine relationship with the boss. They might never be best friends, but, you know, it's actually going okay. And she's doing really well. Her performance is outstanding. And that, for me, is just a bit of an example of how things can change, things can improve sometimes. There's often a bit of a temptation, I think, to have like a really nihilist view of some of the relationships and difficult bosses and things that people experience. There are ways that you can actually teach yourself to cope better so that you're not having as much of an emotional reaction when you're at work and in the situation. You can take less of it home with you and you can pull through, basically. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.